Welcome to Can I Kick It, everybody. My name is Emilio Diaz, and today I am joined by <laughs> Andy Germuga, the one and only. Emphasis on only yeah. today, right? Yeah, because our two other co-hosts, Jesse Weber and Colin Ashley, could not be available to close out the knee month. What has been a lovely the knee month. Happy the knee month, everybody. Yes, but it is not just the two of us in this occasion, as we also have a great guest with us today, one who. What he lacks in experience with De- Claire Denis more than makes up with in charisma. And that is David Carter of the IU Cinema Podcast. How are you doing, David? Doing great. Here we are once again <laughs> in yes. more ways than one. Thank you for having yes. me back yeah. on <laughs> after, uh, you know, the the, the great. Mank-tacular. The Manktacular. Oh, man. Uh, we, we had all the Mank monks on. It was good. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we had we had absolutely everyone to talk about Mank, mm-hmm. and then we had to have him back because we were like, it can't just be Mank all the time. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, real disservice. Even even though I'd done. prefer it if it was Mank all the time, you know, it seemed yeah. he's a good guy. He, you know, sure. he, he, <laughs> yeah, we can revisit Mank today if we want to. We can do a little like I'm what's sure, up with Mank segment. I'm sure if Claire Denis wanted to listen to a podcast about her film, she'd be. Uh, ex- you know, she'd be ecstatic about a 37-minute detour about Mank. Sure. <laughs> yeah, on the f- on the fourth episode. Of <laughs> on the fourth episode. <laughs> as and as Emilio pointed yeah, yeah. out, uh, the I would say you know the least experienced uh, Claire Denis person who's been on the podcast this month, this wonderful month that you guys have put on. Thank you so much for having me to close it out. But you know, no, no worries. I mean, it's like we've been talking about this a little, and uh, I am of the opinion sometimes. Like, I go back and forth on this. I think there is value in all types of experience when watching film. I feel like it is valuable to just to talk to people who have seen everything and know everything and have, like, this big, big deep, like, giant basis of knowledge. But I think there is also value in talking to people who might be a little fresher on it because they might have a different perspective from, like, the thousands of people who might have just, like, combed through her work a trillion times and you're, you're, you might get the same takes. Not that that is what we got from our three past lovely guests they were all very intelligent and eloquent about her films in ways that me and my co-host might be not and that might be the reason why we conned them into being in our podcast (laughs) those are all well no con necessary for me i really wanted to come back on here i had such a good time last time and also i love an excuse you know with my podcast with the podcast i listen to i love an excuse to check out people's films Mm -hmm. in a structured way and uh as we were kind of alluding to, the structure of this podcast is really funny because e- while there are some fun thematic links between these movies, it's really funny that these like movies kind of are way very different from each other. Like as far yes. as like, there's no real yeah. couplings here. Yeah, I mean, it has her film. She's got a weird filmography. But before we get into that, since the only time you were on previously was our Mantacular, which was like a cacophony of guests, and it was a lot of in and out. We didn't get to ask you what we usually ask our guests, which is, what is your history with film festivals? Ah, yes. I actually, you know, much like Claire Denis, I am a, a, a film festival novice for the most part. I'm, I live in Indiana. I've lived in Indiana my entire life. Um, the first 
you know, if you don't count the film festivals that were hosted at the Indiana University Cinema, like there would be Italian film symposiums and there's a horror film festival that would come through once a year for a few years. Um, it wasn't until uh, the South by Southwest 2019 that I actually like went to a proper film festival, mm -hmm. like actually got to go. And it's really funny because that is to date the only like major film festival like I've ever been to. And now it's funny that I actually one of my jobs is that I work as a programmer or program coordinator for the like Heartland Film Festival in Indy. Mm -hmm. So it's while like I haven't really been to many film festivals, uh, it, it's funny that I, like kind of stumbled into a job programming for one or at least helping program for one. Uh, yeah. But I love the but my relationship with film festivals is I love them as an outsider because mm -hmm. I, you know, we talk about the song and dance and like film criticism and film Twitter and like the sure. like uh, rave reviews and pans and like buzz, like, you know, the cycle continues right. and yeah. that cycle has been disrupted for the past year in kind of a refreshing way. But, mm -hmm. you know, much like waiting for a trailer to drop, there is, it's very exciting to like see the flood of reviews and tweets for like movies from people that you're excited, about, like, you know, that you have a fondness for or don't have a fondness for, or the surprising hits or like the unknowns who like rise out. There's all the like narratives that come with it. And since I'm like right. not really into sports, the award shows and film festivals are really all I got <laughs> at the end yeah. of the day. So, right. Yeah, it is like, yeah, that's the like, the way that I guess I first became like aware of film festivals was just like noticing that like every fall and every January or whatever, there would be like a week where every three hours, like I'd see a whole bunch of capsule reviews on Twitter, like that pour out in tweets and stuff and be aware that like, oh yeah, all these people were all like going out and seeing the same things all the time and like doing dispatches from there. Like that is sort of the way that film festivals are like, I guess, you know, being introduced to a new generation now, which is a, uh, which is an interesting, I, you know, I, I wonder how people like heard about them before. I guess it would have been like write-ups in their newspaper. Yeah, I would assume whatever. it would just like, be places like the, you know, the New York Times and, you know, whatever, like whatever, just be newsprint. Uh, but it's, it's very exciting. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who have attended film festivals and you hear all the stories out of it. And there is something magical about it, which is why I, I enjoy listening to this podcast so much. Uh, it's it just seems like a pl like a place where a lot of people who are you would you know, they would consider each other friends, but they see each other like once a year. But they have this like one common thing that binds them. And it's like the fact that they get to go see a movie that no one else except for the cast and crew has seen you know, right. like for the first time. And there's something like very electric about that. And that, and that was my experience going to South by Southwest was like getting the seat. Uh, like I got my first film was the open, was the premiere of us. Jordan oh, feels man. us. And you know, it's the sophomore film. It's the, yeah. you know, it's a packed crowd. I waited in line for six hours just so I could God. get in. And just like, obviously the crowd's reactions to everything being the like cherry on top, but like also just getting to like stand in line and interact with like all these, my, my now boss, I met in line per, by accident. It was, a, wow. yeah, like just completely by chance. We were just standing in line and he noticed that we were from Bloomington. Uh, and so started talking to us and I don't know. That's beautiful. I love it. No, I mean, yeah, for sure. It's like, it's like 60% about the movies, well, maybe even less than that. And like 40% about just like the congregation of people that are there and that you can talk to and can have a discussion with. And, and it's like, being like you said you're from indiana like being from puerto rico i rarely get to see 
just basically like first an indie or an art movie in a big screen like they rarely make their their way out here so you rarely get to see them rarely do you get to see them in a big theater with a packed crowd which is like also very funny to think about and then have like a group of friends or even strangers that you can talk about that movie after them. I can go watch about endlessness on an IMAX screen and then talk to people about it afterwards, which is like a very funny thing to think about that happened at that, the second tip we went to. But yeah, I mean, it's like, we've, we've all been appreciating them. I was in, I guess like sort of outsiders, sort of insiders since the pandemic started, because obviously the, best part of like as i said like 40 to 50 percent of it is the people and that is the aspect that has been sapped out of it in our current situation but you know hopefully we'll all get back to it sometime yeah i i really i really hope so you know us at heartland like we constantly have conversations because our film festival is in the fall so we're constantly having conversations like will we do this in person like we'll see but like I, i think it's such a like key component to like what makes you know, film festival, such a thing. Also like the deliriousness of just like watching so much in such a short period of time and interacting with so many people, like the fact that you are kind of sleep deprived and you're eating badly and you're tired the whole time. Like, I don't know. It it adds to it. And maybe that's like that whole sleepover thing where like, you're just like, you're like just having fun, like and behaving badly because you're on, you're on like paid vacation almost. And yeah, you're at movie camp. Yeah, exactly. You're at movie (laughs) camp. Like it's, it's, it's a good time. And you know, virtual has, you know, been nice for certain aspects, but like, I, I know I personally just get very, because I watch so many movies at home already to watch like a new movie at home feels very strange to me. So like, I, I don't grok to it as quickly as some people right. have during the pandemic. So I, I look forward to if uh, if the greatest country on earth gets its uh, its stuff together and we can maybe return to some sort of film festival uh, yeah. like in person. So, What sort of film festival is the Heartland Film Festival? The Heartland Film Festival is actually apparently the oldest regional film festival uh, like in the mid, it's been going for 30, this is the 30th anniversary, it started in 1991. Wow. Um, there are two uh, components to it. There's the Indie Shorts, which is what we're programming right now. The Indie Shorts, Indianapolis Indie. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but we're doing that right now, and that's in July. And then there is the like Film Festival proper, which is in October, and it's feature. It's like features, and we get things that play. You know, things that play at like Sundance and things that have already played. Sometimes we're, we're lucky enough to premiere things. Uh, yeah. I learned, I, I did not know this before I got the job. Apparently they have a great track record of having at least one Academy Award winning like short or feature length film play in the festival like every mm-hmm. year apparently. Yeah. Um, so I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like one of those things where we talk about like festival season often, but I think a part that sort of like gets ignored sometimes is like regional festival season which is like like sort of new york and like post new york of just like yeah the movies that were at tiff at venice at Cannes, at sundance that year eventually make their way to different like regional film festivals and like more people get to experience them like oh i think we often it's stated that like oh so some people in toronto get to watch a movie and then like nine months later everybody else gets to watch it but i think there's like if you live close enough to like a major city, even like in a place like the Midwest or in the Southwest, like there is a decent chance that there'll be a, a f- film festival near you programming some of that stuff. And I think that's worth checking out. 
Yeah, it really is kind of a godsend to a place like the Midwest. Because also my relationship with movies just being in the Midwest is like, I just, it's, it's a, it is a game to go see a movie. Essentially, you have to make, you have to make a lot of plans, a lot of trips to Chicago, a lot of trips to Mm -hmm. Indianapolis, Mm -hmm. sometimes trips to Ohio, like you, you get what you get. And if you really want to see something, sometimes you have to like, I I remember driving uh, up to Indianapolis during a snowstorm to go see the last, it only played for one week, the remake of Suspiria, the last screening at 10 o'clock at night. Wow. And there was a snowstorm, and me and my friends were just like, a, "If we don't see it now, we gotta wait however many months till it's out on, right? Like on Blu-ray." So we just like we just we just like crossed our fingers and hoped for the best, and we made it, and it God. and it and it was truly a magical experience. Uh, so yeah, what yeah. a movie to see! Like having just has recently having uh, had a near possible near death experience. Yeah, I mean it was scary, <laughs> like getting to and from <laughs> to and from there. So yeah, yeah. So, I for yeah. sure had yeah had that experience where it's like a movie. What's the last time I did that? It's like the indie theaters here are in San Juan, which are like two and plus hours away from me either way. So it's like if I ever go, I have to have a day. So it's like I watched, I went there and watched, uh, Sorry to Bother You, and then stayed at that theater for like three hours, and then later watched Black Klansman, and then drove back. So that was like a. 13 hour experience to watch two movies and <laughs> but it's fun and we love doing it so i no, yeah, yeah i mean it's super <laughs> fun i also remember there was like one time one like a regional puerto rican film festival it weirdly it was like in october and it played like can you ever forgive me the year like before it was out it played shoplifters before it was out and it's like i actually got to see some of those movies and i was like exciting Right, that's you saw Pain and Glory, right? Like that. No, I saw Pain and Play, Pain and Glory was just in theaters in Puerto Rico before it was oh, at festivals okay. because it's Puerto sure. Rico and we get right. like have some connection to Spain, so they bring the movies. The other, <laughs> yeah, that was funny because that was like, I almost never watch a movie with Spanish subtitles on because it's like such a rare occasion that that opportunity like a movie that i need to i need subtitles for obviously like uh, they will always like play movies in english with spanish subtitles here but it's like i watched sub i watched shoplifters with spanish subtitles and that was like a sort of weirdly disorienting experience god yeah that is strange uh but yeah that's my that's my history with film festivals and you know films that would maybe play at film festivals (laughs) now to grill you for some more history what's the history of claire denis what's the first one you watched ah yes my history with claire denis out before i get to the first one i watched my history of claire denis starts back in 2012 um the the ie cinema the founder is this was is this great man he's not dead he just retired recently uh uh named john vickers uh who actually has like a kind of a a a nice relationship with courtney he got her here in 2012 not long after white material came out it was actually her first stop on her like tour around the country like she was gonna go to new like she's going to new york after after the stop here Uh um and uh john's very sweet man and he would any sort of like young budding cinephiles like he'd invite you to lunch with the filmmakers and you know that mm-hmm. you know and all that and i uh i declined for the mostly the reason of like i was broke so like i couldn't get out of my dishwashing job mm-hmm. at the restaurant i was working at without like losing it essentially and i i needed that se- i needed that 725 an hour real bad uh yeah. <laughs> um 
And also, I had just never seen any of her films, which is something I still kind of do today, where if like I'm invited to something for someone's work I'm not familiar with, I'll sometimes just decline, just because I'm like, well, that's a seat for somebody else. Uh, and then to this day, it's one of the biggest regrets I've ever had in my entire life <laughs> that I didn't just quit my job and go to lunch with Claire Denis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy, I meant you would have gotten several stories out of oh that yeah i mean i i do have a story uh, a, a third hand story to share with you guys about chocolate at some point um but uh yeah the first movie so then years went by and you would think like after that experience like they use i would have checked them out but as some people know and has been brought up this podcast her hard, movies were, are hard to find like yes. and it, it wasn't that it wasn't that i didn't want to start with white material which i think had just gotten like a criterion release back in like 2011 or 2012 or something like that it was mostly just i i'm such a chronological chronological mm-hmm. person i just wanted to start mm-hmm. at the beginning and go forward and i quickly realized that was never the case and so you know things ebb and flow go by and then eventually and then you know eventually i think it's 2016 is when let the sun shine in or is it 2017 Uh, it's like i think it's like 2016 france 2017 so 2017 is when i would have seen it um yeah i just remember watching you know my yearly david ehrlich's top 25 countdown uh movies it had let the sun shine in and i and it was i think it was going up on hulu like a week after that had Mm -hmm. like that video had dropped i was like finally i will Start here. I'd heard is pretty accessible, and that is the first Claire Denis movie I'd ever seen. I was more of a big Juliette Binoche fan, sure. uh, just because of being in the French cinema in general. Uh, and that movie, and I just remember like finishing that movie and thinking like, I vibe with that, but I don't know if I like. I didn't realize that it that it was supposed to be a romantic comedy until it was over. um even though amusingly on the let the sunshine in episode apparently apparently the like description of it says that it's a romantic comedy (laughs) on it even though it does not play like a romantic comedy in the traditional sense like a lot of her movies don't play in the traditional sense uh and from there i you know high life came out and then on our own podcast we were doing a retrospective of 1999 films for its 20th anniversary and so one of our guests was like, I'd really like to talk about Bo Travai, and I'd wanted to see that movie for so long. I, I didn't even know, like, somehow I had avoided knowing about, like, the ending, uh, at like, with the mm. dance and the song and everything. Yeah. And I watched that movie, like, essentially twice in a row, because I finished it, and then I was, I was like, I don't know if, I was like, what, 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 I didn't, I didn't understand, like, I was like, I don't understand, right. and then I just decided to go back, and it immediately all kind of, like, clicked into place for me, and so, and just from there, I've just kind of been interested in her as like a figure. Um, it, I've been interested in her like as like her career, and I, it's been really nice to sit and watch these three films and listen to this series with the you know the, even with the holes that I'm like missing and like don't have mm-hmm. the context for everything. But she is, you know, one of our you know I'm going to use the word a lot. To, like she is one of our great vibe directors. Like yeah. One of our great vibe directors and also one of our great uh you need to rewatch like rewatch directors because sure. her her movies don't really reveal themselves until the final moments. All her conceits are at the end of her movie. It's really interesting. Um and so yeah, that that's pretty much my like whole history with Claire Denis and I I find her a fascinating figure all the way from her persona as this like incredibly prickly, withering person, you know, to like 
the fact that she does have this she's kind of a softy based on her work that i've seen too like mm-hmm. she she has so many different modes and you yeah know, i mean like, it's one of it's like one of the, it's like almost i think a french thing of she's either a softy or she's like extremely hardcore and it's yeah. sort of hard to pin her down in that way but i think that's what's interesting about the work so the first of the three movies we have to talk about is Chocola, her first movie. Yeah, her, her first, first fe- movie. Her and first the, feature film. And the only one that went to Cannes, in, like, in competition, in the, right? Correct? Right. Yeah. Yes, it was entered into the 1988 Cannes Film Festival. Uh, that festival, the Palme d'Or, went to... Uh-oh. What language is it? Uh, uh, Pell Aerobaron by Billy August. I, I'm not familiar a Danish director, I guess. Um, uh, the, that festival opened with Le Grand Bleu, directed by Luc Besson, and closed with Willow, directed by Ron Howard. <laughs> our old friend, Ron Howard. God, uh, damn it. God damn how many times Ron <laughs> Howard going to uh, appear on this podcast. Yo, when's the Ron Howard? Have you guys done Ron Howard yet? <laughs> uh, we talked about uh, him in, in both our Cannes Blockbusters episodes last okay. year. And... Uh, Spoiler alert! He's coming up again with the with with the with if we if we do if we do another can blockbuster. Oh my god! Um, the man does not quit. Uh, does not quit. I mean, he works. That's the yes. that's the nicest thing anyone can say about Ron Howard. He works. He gets the he gets the film done on time under budget. Usually, I mean, for sure. Oh, usually okay. Kind of. Yeah. For the most part, like usually, like I no mean, no real yeah. like terrible movies. Well, no, there's probably a couple. There's. I mean, I listen. One of those episodes might have included twenty minutes of us talking shit about the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> what, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure he's great to work with. I'm sure the, the Cannes Film Festival loves putting his movies out of competition there. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, Chocolat played that year. Other notable movies: Bird by Clint Eastwood. Great movie. Love that movie. A Patty Hearst by Paul Schrader, and yeah, a Gary Sinise movie. Oh, I didn't know Gary Sinise uh, dipped his toes in directing at all. Yeah, I mean that's like if you just like look through a list of can competition, you'll find just like mm, I didn't know Tim Roth directed movies. It's just, it's just, there's a lot of that in there. I w- you know I would love if Criterion just put out a box set of like actors who directed like one or two movies that you've never heard of before. Right. That I would I would the I would love that because I I know at least four of them would be good. Sure. <laughs> you could yeah. yeah. I mean, you could I organize mean, that by festivals too, and it would be like interesting because like you know to like avoid the Tribeca one, but like the the Sundance one would maybe be okay. Yeah. But you know, I mean, it's like there 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 probably would be some great movies in there, and then there's just gonna be some absolutely awful movies. There's gonna yeah. be like and the, prob- la- the last face is that what the Sean Penn movie is called? <laughs> I believe so. <laughs> the thing By is, all accounts, is it, awful. <laughs> I feel like it would mostly just be, uh, you know, to borrow a phrase, films that don't exist. Honestly, like it yeah, would just be, sure. it would just be like, a, it's not bad, but as soon as the film ends, your brain would just be wiped clean. You would not remember right. a thing you just saw. And yeah, for and sure. Just like yeah, right. I feel like they would all have to include a special feature that was just the red carpet footage because that's like the real reason maybe they played the festival. Yes, exactly. So that they would show up on walk the red carpet there. But uh, yes, uh, uh, chocolate. Shall we talk about? Ch- yeah, the I love movie chocolate. Well, I mean, I'll just I'll just say it right now uh, to 
you know, past episode, someone said like, well, Bo Trevi is her best film. And you guys asked what were people's favorite films. This is my favorite of her movies I've seen okay. thus far. Um, yeah. I, w- I would um, say. And the, the my second favorite movie is, is, on, is on this list, too, is the one we're going to talk about a little later. 35 Shots of Rum. Great. Yeah. Yes. I, yeah. I liked all the movies that we're talking about today were first time watches for me that uh, I have watched in like in the last 48 hours due to poor planning on my part for, uh, over the past week. Um, and uh, I liked two of two of them a lot. Yeah. Uh, you want to uh, briefly introduce what Chocolat is as a movie? Andy? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So Chocolat, um, it's as you know, as a first film, I think it's like among the more straightforward of her films that I've encountered so far. Cause it's like pretty clear, like we're using like this structure and like, this is like what's happened. Like you, it has a very clear sense of who everyone is and like what the time frame is and everything. And like, I think, I feel like she's like, she's clearly has not thrown away her concerns about like making sure that an audience knows what's what, uh, at all times. Uh, so it's, um, it's a flashback structure. There's an adult woman named France, very, very subtle that she's named a French woman named France, uh, uh, who, um, is in Africa and you, uh, flash back to her life, uh, as, uh, as a young girl when her father is like in charge of like the, the colony there that the French, the French colony. Um, and so you see her. Uh, and it's about her and the household uh, focuses largely on um, their one, like, domestic servant, uh, Prote, um, and th- and his relationship to the family. Uh, and you sort of see uh, him interact with the family, and you see the family interact with him, and uh, there's, like, a few other, like, visitors come in, and, like, but it's, it's bas- essentially, yeah, like, just, like, looking at the relationship between this family and the their setting and the people who were native to the country that they are colonizing um uh throughout and yeah and so you get yeah you get a lot of her as a young girl you get a lot of her per family and you get a lot of a lot of prote in particular yeah sort of the basic setup I mean, this is this is her white guilt movie, and it's it's one of the it's one of the few really good white guilt movies I've ever seen. Which is why I like this movie so much. Mm-hmm. Like, she really is wrestling with the idea. Like, I mean, this is I don't know. I know I know a lot of her African movies, as far as what I've read, are pretty autobiographical. But like, this seems like this was pulled straight from mm-hmm. her soul. Like, it seems very much bearing herself to this like she's very you know very clearly the little girl and Mm -hmm. you know as much as like if her mother had any sort of like you know uh lust for her house you know the per like the person who ran her house i don't know any of that but uh you know it's about the like it's a microcosm movie and it's about the last days of colonialism in france and like it's it's about power. I mean, it's all just about like power yeah. structures and lines you literally cannot cross or, you know, you know, mm-hmm. the dehumanization of, you know, like dealing with the, your own dehumanization and like being able to do nothing about it. And uh, yeah, also like from, you know, the little girl's point of view, like reflecting back and kind of realizing like how messed up that all like that all is. And like, you know, talking to this, you know, what's revealed to be an American at the end of the movie and like, that ball like that tangled ball of you know like the her assumption about what he is and then the reveal of like what he actually is and what she is and how badly she treated prote for so long and then you have this whole 
group of people come in and like completely flip the world upside down and like ask like ask even harder questions like when Luke that like leftist hippie shows up and like completely starts messing everything up and invading spaces mm-hmm. like invading spaces in his own way under the guise of trying to be progressive it's right it's it's all it's i mean it's 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 all, it's all very complicated it's a microcosm of what the macro of the planet earth actually is mm-hmm. <laughs> um so i i just enjoyed this movie so much and i just i don't know I, like i called it her white guilt movie and that was mostly I like finding out that she said, like, I think I had a desire to express a certain guilt I felt as a child raised in the colonial world. Um, yeah. And that in itself uh, is interesting. I wonder if she still feels that guilt to this very day. Because, mm-hmm. like, colonialism didn't really go anywhere. It just became tacit. It's mm-hmm. it's now it's now it's no longer overt. It, well, it's still pretty overt, but it's now no longer called colonialism. Uh, sure. So. Uh, I, I I would be curious to talk to her like how she feels today and like the you know what is essentially the later part of her life because when she's doing this she's like a young woman this is eighty eight she just finished being an assistant director with Vim Vendors and Jim Jarmusch uh, and now I know like you know with someone who has like her own established career and like has aged and developed I wonder how she would feel about this movie now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because. Earlier, like, yeah, um, Amelia was, like, looking at her, her general, like, Wikipedia, Claire Denis Wikipedia page earlier, and was commenting on, like, the, what was the, it was, like, a few paragraphs in, it's said No, it's just, it's like the second, it's like the second sentence in her Wikipedia pages. Her work has dealt with the themes of colonial and post-colonial West Africa, as well as issues in modern France, and continues to influence European cinematic identity, which is, like, a weird way to phrase that sentence when I feel like it should probably those two things should probably be flipped but uh i guess her like her work like white material and chocolate have like left a bit of a a bit of a mark on like her being one of the few people who will like tackle that top topic i guess like one of the few like high profile white filmmakers who will tackle that topic i am sure there are plenty of other people I mean, yeah. Making as far as white filmmakers making movies about French colonialism, I, I put a gun to my head. I would not be able to name another one. It it really is to yeah. me like her, and like even before I'd seen this because of white material, like that is kind of how I got introduced to her as the, the woman who deals with like West African French colonialism in her movies. But you know, I've only I've only seen one movie with that you know in it and obviously other movies she has worked with like black actors and things like that but like they don't really like 35 shops of rum isn't really about colonialism it's about the working right. class like it's not really it's not really the same thing so it's it's interesting that she kind of got pigeonholed into that a little bit in her early career I, I feel like she's had a lot of factors in her career that have kind of kept her like she why she had such a delayed pop in the states like obviously there's the availability thing but then I do wonder if, like, her films being characterized as these, like, slow, moody meditations on, like, treating black people badly, like, kind of made people be like, a, never mind, like, I don't really need to check that out. Seems kind of, you know, I don't want to deal with that. But in, like, the reality is, is, like, she's making, like, deconstructionist genre movies and, like, <laughs> like, cra- like, I don't know, she's making a lot of crazy things. And, like, a lot of her, you know, more vibe-heavy movies are more gentle than anything. So, uh, it... Yeah, I wonder how much that contributed to uh, her popping a little later. Because I feel like Let the Sunshine is when 
I is when she becomes a thing in the states, like hardcore. At least on at least on uh, the internet, maybe maybe not yeah, so much amongst like, like. Obviously, I think it's like this is I think a thing that we have circled around with a lot of the directors we've spoken about of just like how why they pop up later in America and just like the phases of them popping up in America because it's like. I f- we, we talked about this a little with Bilga, obviously, but she, it's like w- w- talking to him, and he was like, yeah, until Bo- like Bo Travai was when I first heard people in America talking about her, and they're like, that movie popping, and a lot of people getting to see that, but like as the 2000s went on, that movie was extremely impossible to find. I mean, it was like, impossible to find until it came out on Criterion recently. It's just like a, lot, a ton of people, after Let the Sunshine In came out, wanted to see it and saw a very bad copy, such as myself. Was, that, is, that bad copy of Bo Travai is the only version I've ever seen of that movie. Oh, wow. And yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's like sometimes there are like delayed stages of people popping it up in America, which is like, you know, in some, in like, in some way, it's a little tragic because it's like you want people to be able to see it, but you know. America's not the complete center of the world. It's glad Definitely the not. No, I mean, yes. And like I said, I was I was trying to keep it purely America and then America in the 2010. Like, you know, I was trying right. to. Yeah. Just because. Yeah. And it's the, and it really, it probably is just the internet. And this is just my perception as a millennial. Right. Like, I'm sure anyone over the age of 35 who was very much into, you know, art house cinema would tell me that like, mm-hmm. a, no, Claire Denis definitely been a thing. You just kind of had to go to it to see it. You just can't watch it in your home. But, right. I, you know generationally the things that we tend to uh like you know clamp like uh grab onto are the things that are easily available for us to in in the physical media era of like the the aughts and the 2010s the things that we could just physically buy or rent or check out from the library yeah Uh, anything else like you know torrenting obviously became a thing but you know who's got torrents of Bo Travai line like how many cedars we got on Bo Travai today baby like no. yeah, exactly. <laughs> according to friends of mine it's it's a little it's pretty hard to get cedars on the boat on the on that old Bo Travai tour <laughs> who um, knows really but, but like yeah. a, but about the movie I, I had a question for you yeah. too I would say for me the key scenes in this movie are the two shower scenes one with Is- Isak de Bancolet, who's incredible in this. Uh, someone on an early episode mentioned that, like, she loves working with, like, actors with faces. Isak, Bonto- mm-hmm. Is- Isak de Bancolet has, like, one of the greatest yeah, faces of all time. I, I I don't know what he's up to these days. Uh, obviously a frequent collaborator with Jim Jarmusch, which the, there's things I want to talk about yes. with her. Claire Denis' relationship with Jim Jarmusch and how the films kind of mirror each other since they are, like, friends and... Uh, you know, they have worked together. Uh, but there's two shower scenes in this movie. There's the one, there's the first one with Isak de Bancale where he's showering in private. He's outdoors because he's, right. uh, you know, he's just the help. Uh, yeah. And his space is invaded because he thinks he's alone. And then the the France women walk by mm-hmm. and he's immediately just like, his world is shattered. And it, it's mm-hmm. like so quickly. Uh, yeah. And then you have later the shower scene with Luke where he is like, just like a, everything's good, peens out. Uh, like he's kind of given, not really given a show, but like there's no shame or like indignity. And like, but it's not his space. Like, cause he's, he's a weirdo, not weirdo, but he's like, has this weird thing where he just refuses to, int- like, even though he's benefiting off of the colonialism, like he is still mm-hmm. like being like, a, I work with these people or, uh, uh, you know, 
uh, I, 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 you know, I work with these people or like, I'm going to not sleep in the house. I'm going to sleep with them and I'm going to try to interact with them as if they're equals, even though at like one point he's getting served just like the rest of the family. But I, I was just curious how you two, you know, how, how either of you felt about the shower scene. Yeah, for sure. It's super striking. And then also there's the other shower moment in the film, right, is when Prote like has to like fill her like house shower for her, right? He like brings the buckets and like pours them in and then like immediately sees the water like discharging out. And like he has like a look of disgust on his face when he sees that. I think that's before he's cleaning himself, right? Isn't that? Yeah. Remembering the chron- yeah, that is before he cleans himself. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I do like, yeah, it's... They were definitely some of the more striking scenes in the film. And yeah, I just like, yeah, especially, yeah, the way that, that he, the physicality of him, like, yeah, yeah. trying to clean himself and like all, like all down on the ground and and, and everything. And so low, it it was just like, just like fascinating as like an image of like a body. And then like you add on all the other stuff of like the, the environment and him beginning getting uh uh you know interrupted and all that like yeah it was there's a lot going on there certainly and it's an incredibly gripping scene i think yeah yeah and you brought up like the keyword to claire denis at least in the the movies i've been watching like body it's she she's just obsessed with like the like the human form and like every like the way she shoots like the you know prote and luke like she is so into like the liveness of their bodies, but like how differently they are like like Prote is this incredibly beautiful man and but like yes. and when he's like naturalistic and washing and like in his element is great, but when he tenses up, like he becomes mm-hmm. like frail and fragile like so quickly. And mm-hmm. because Luke has like no shame or like self awareness as to what he is, like he's very much like his body is on display, like it's for everyone to see. And I, I think that's that's so important to like maybe cracking, like obviously Pro Trevi, her biggest body movie, it's nothing but men moving and flexing muscles and dancing and right. uh, yeah. like, you know, uh, I, I find I find her fascination with the human body like probably to be her biggest strength, uh, mm-hmm. personally. No, yeah, I mean, she's like, she captures it in very interesting ways. It's like, Botrevi is like her biggest body movie, but then there's also like Trouble Every Day, which is like maybe her most body movie. I don't even know. Maybe maybe Botrevi is the most body movie, and like <laughs> Trouble Every Day is the best. It's just like I mean, yeah, Trouble Every Day is the most inside the body. <laughs> <laughs> it's internal. You know, there's the external body and there's the internal body. Yeah, yeah. She goes into yeah. both, literally. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, b- beneath the skin for sure. <laughs> Uh, no, but yeah, I've mentioned about her. Like she, it's like my take on her is that she she like makes these movies about like the human soul being the destruction of the human body so often. Just like how people want each other and just like how that tears the tears us apart. Either like emotionally in a movie like uh, Let the Sunshine In, or physically like in a movie like Trouble Every Day or High Life. So, so it's like she she's the best at it and it's just like she can communicate so much about relationships and wanting and logging through just like a couple of shots of people's bodies even horror occasionally as in one yeah. of the movies we'll get to later yeah there's uh, yeah, i know probably what you're referring to <laughs> <laughs> um i i don't know how much time we have to spend on chocolate is can i tell a story that i'm telling third hands for of the <laughs> 
Uh, so John Vickers, former uh, the founder of the IU Cinema, as I said, has a relationship with Claire Denis, and uh, he actually he arranged like a five stop tour for her when she was coming uh-huh. to visit, like to Notre Dame and in, in, in Indiana, uh, not the one in France. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, New York, the Walker Center, like all these different places. And so he he mm-hmm. took a road trip with her to her like her next destination. Um, and apparently like they just talked the entire time and he has many stories that he could not share with me or he said, I cannot share. And then you can't tell other people because things are said. Uh, and, uh, and even this story, I guess they're like details left out, but apparently they talked the whole time. Apparently only time they stopped talking is so she could take a call from Vincent Gallo and a call from Jim Jarmusch. Other than that, pure conversation. Uh, but apparently when she was working on assistant director and down by law, um, I I guess you know she became close to a lot of the actors and there's a scene if I don't know if you've seen Down Below in a long time but like yes, there's a scene a with like movie. John Lurie and Roberto Benigni and Tom Waits they cook the rabbit um, and it's a whole thing and she was responsible for shooting that scene and it was very complicated I guess emotions were running high about cooking this rabbit um, and uh, on the final day of the shoot Tom Waits came up to Claire and like told her to hold out her hands uh, and then he said uh, I. I know you're about to be ready to start shooting your, your, your first feature film. And so he's like, here, I hope this brings good luck. And he put a rabbit's foot in her hands. Uh, and apparently, even though, you know, whatever the drama was around the cooking of this rabbit, she kept that rabbit's foot during the entire filming of Chocolat. And when she wrapped shooting, she threw the rabbit's foot into the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a great move. Hey, listen. After you're done with the first time, after you did it once, who needs the rabbit's right. foot anymore? Yeah, you don't need yeah. the luck. You don't need no the luck, luck anymore. I've got this thing. <laughs> but <laughs> could you imagine Tom Waits with Tom Waits' voices coming up to you, asking you to hold out your hand and placing a rabbit's foot inside I mean, of it? Because <laughs> also she's like so small. Tom Waits. I know. So, you know, I, th- th- that's just a crazy cast to begin with. But. Yeah, you know, of like, of like figures to be on set and like Jim Jarmusch, who I also have met in real life, is like 6'2 or something like that. It's a lot of different heights on that set. <laughs> I mean, but must have made it hard to shoot some stuff. I would, prob- <laughs> probably. probably. But I just wanted to, to relay that story because I get a lot of no, hey, of it when I hear that's it. Because <laughs> I, like, I feel like that's uh, maybe a topic we've discussed not that much on. The, these podcasts of just like her connection to other filmmakers and how she got her start and just like yeah how she worked on uh paris texas and how she worked on down by law and how she worked with yeah. vendors well, and you know and maybe this is a decent transition into 35 shots of rum but the the connection between her and jim jarmusch like i would say you know we talk about directors who are like our friends or colleagues and they pull from each other, be it the like film brats of the seventies or like your Eli Roths and Quentin Tarantino's and Robert Rodriguez is like, you know, whatever the clicks are like Jim Jarmusch. And I, and I say this not, you know, I'm not comparing her to a man, like they're friends and colleagues. Like they, she, they feel like they share a lot. And like 35 shots of Rome, you have this like story that's about like a working class family and it's about this like father-son relationship and it's very much a vibe movie very much just like people uh you know like kind of sitting and like stewing and, and there's the ozu influence obviously but it reminded me you know it whether he took influence from not it reminds me a lot of like patterson which is like another like 
working class, you know, movie that's very like dreamlike and like purely yeah. vibes, like no real story to speak mass of. Mass transit. Mass transit. Oh man, the mass transit in her movie, like her movies are always about traveling. Like that's like a thematic mm-hmm. link. Like be it being in a car and you know remembering your whole life mm-hmm. or going back and forth on trains or being a former ship captain and car crashes and selling your car like travel and like automobiles are like such a like central part to her movies but i feel like they're both like they're these like weird lo-fi poets that kind of feel like over the years they've like pushed and pulled and like taken things from each other um and i don't know if that's a direct like directly or indirectly or what but um yeah yeah, it might might just be that they circle around the same things but it's like patterson is a good like comp for 35 shots and that yeah they're they're both by the movies that are mostly about like people sitting and looking at each other and trying to just like reflect on like well where am i in life and what am i doing and what do we want and like where are we going and that sort of stuff i think the public we talked about the public transit thing but i think the public transit thing is like my diagnosis of it would be as like i think that's like i assume she's like a people watcher and i think that is like a big avenue for people watchers as a people watcher myself just like public transit of just like sitting on the train and looking at a person next to you and being like what's this guy's life what what, what are they up to and like what look at all these people outside and what are the lives that they're living and i think like that's what strikes me and like what would seem appealing about like a job like a bus driver or something like that just like being a constant part of a bunch of different random chaotic people's lives yeah i mean she captures that and you know not to to you know, one of my billion jobs I've worked, like I was a bus driver for like eight years of my life. <laughs> uh, like, right. so I've, uh, and so, you know, I think maybe that's why I enjoy 35 shots of rum. Cause a lot of it is just, you are just contemplating a lot. You know, I would listen to music mm-hmm. and things like that, but like contemplation and memory and all that, that, that does just kind of occur naturally when like it is your job just to transport people back and forth, essentially what are just giant elaborate circles all day. Right. Um, and yeah. you, th- there is something to that that I think she captures really well. Like, especially as they're traveling on the train in 35 shots of rum, uh, you know, like as his friend, Renee, uh, Alex, Alex Deska's friends, R- Renee in the film, like, and he's talking about like, you know, not really feeling ready to move on to like the next part of his mm-hmm. life, even though he's about to retire, uh, like conversations like that kind of do happen very organically on like public transit. Like I would talk, I would have conversations like that with complete strangers, like, you know, once a week uh, where someone would say like, I'm graduating. And it's like, I don't really know what to do, what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And I would never see that person ever again. Um, and it's, yeah. it's fascinating. And it's something is like, it's very therapeutic to see that portrayed on screen. Yeah. Yeah, way. it's like yeah, like the profundity of like a deep conversation with somebody you'll never see again. It's like a very poetic thing to reminisce on. But just to like briefly introduce it, we are talking about Thirty Five Shots of Rum now, which is a movie, a Claire Denis movie from two thousand and eight, starring Alec Deca and Maddie Diop, who are a fa- a father and daughter duo who are like living together and sort of figuring their lives out as like they try to stay together but eventually come to realize that their lives at some point must come apart and they must be sort of become their own people as like these other figures in their life such as uh gregoire colin plays the character what's his name noe 
and mm-hmm. there is a different uh the Nicole Dog plays a little character named Gabrielle and just like these characters who revolve around their life and eventually make them come to this realization of like well we have to become our own people and we have to live our own lives and there are different aspects to life rather than just our relationship and it's uh I sort it's like I feel like this is hipster isn't the right word for it, but I feel like this is like the pe- the people in the know. This is Claire Denis' best movie. It's like a thing I hear a lot of, like the people <laughs> who watch them all, who like who like are like, oh well, I've seen Bo Travai and everybody knows Bo Travai is great, and everybody's seen like Let the Sunshine In, and that's her breakthrough. But like Thirty Five Shots of Rum, that's the one to watch. So that's how I came to it, and it's I think it's great. It's uh, and it's I think it's an immensely well-performed movie. I think Deca gives an, an, an amazing performance, and I think The Up yeah. is yeah. also great. Yes. Um, I guess also just, it premiered at the 65th Venice Film Festival. It was out of competition, um, along with the other out of, some of the other out-of-competition movies were uh, Burn After Reading and a few others. Uh, and it, uh, the, the, That's the year The Wrestler won, uh, and Kurt <laughs> Locker also played. Uh, where uh, uh, Vim Benders was the jury president um, at that one. So, Interesting. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, this is one I, I watched for the first time uh, today, and I really did like it a lot. Like, yeah, it is, like, that central performance, the Alex Dekat performance, is just, like, so tremendous. And, like, all this, like, the the, the stuff he's able to carry on his face as, like, he is just, like... Because so much of the movie is just him, like, sitting and thinking or, like, sitting and drinking and thinking or, like, whatever. Like, all, all these different, like, like he's he doesn't have a ton of business, but, like, he you still, like, go on a full journey with yeah, him, I he, think, you know. He's either yeah. inscrutable or you know exactly what he's thinking at any yeah. given moment just with a look. Like, the, you know, the, the scene that I feel like people probably bring up a lot in this movie, the, the diner after they go into the the Caribbean owned restaurant and to get out of the right. rain when they miss the concert. And like the look he shoot, he's like, look, obviously looking at his right. daughter in no way and things like that. And like realizing like, uh, Oh, she's, she's going to be lost to me. But it, he also knows that he's like, uh, I'm, I'm lonely. And like, I can't go to Gabrielle who like, he clearly knows has like feelings for him. So like the look he shoots to that waitress, like is so visceral where he's like, uh, you will like th- like you like I want you with me right now because I am very like I'm sad and I'm lonely but I cannot convey that to these other two women in this like restaurant right now so I'm going to dance with you to this Commodore song. Uh, yeah, I mean, oh. it's like one of the best scenes, like one of the best scenes of her career, maybe my favorite. It's just like incredible, like the use of music. Like she's obviously great at like capturing dancing, as we talked about, and like let the sunshine in and uh us go home but like that scene of just and like Beau-Travai, of course yeah and Beau-Travai, <laughs> obviously <laughs> in a weird in a stranger way but yeah also Beau-Travai. but yeah just like the the laser like the how everybody's eyes are focused on each other and what everybody is has to communicate in one shot that is looking in one direction and then another shot communicated in another direction it's just like masterful at every second of it and like credit to every performer in it. I mean, obviously Deca is like the standout and he's the highlight. Frequent collaborator, we've talked about him and other stuff. He's in Let the Sunshine In. He's in the other movie we'll talk about later. He's like 
a great actor who can do a lot with little, which is why I imagine that Claire is drawn to him. Like, they're, like, sort of a perfect match. But the the Op's great also. Obviously, great filmmaker in her own right. Oh, yeah. Uh, Atlantics is one of the, I would say, right now underrated, you know, films of the <laughs> of the 2010s. But I think we'll, we'll grow, like, keep growing in estimation as it keeps going. Yeah, and it's like, I, I mean, I agree with you. That's a movie that... I went in watching like, oh, yeah, that'll be good. It'll be interesting. And then I watched it and I was like, that's incredible. That's like amazing that that's like a filmmaker's like first movie sort of. Obviously, it's an expansion of a yeah. short film that she had made. But uh, it's so it's just because magical realism is really hard to get right. Like so many people stumble doing it and she just completely knocks it out of the park. But yes, a great filmmaker in her own right. Yeah. And it's like in that movie, you can sort of see the like denny influence you can sort of see that like that it's a big that's a huge movie about human bodies and just like looking at each other and what that does that does for her but uh yeah it's like andy did you see atlantics i have not seen it yet no i haven't it's been on my list forever i know it's just on netflix which is always like it is a blessing and a curse it is one of those movies that i i will just tell you right now it is I understand where it's like a, if there's any like reservations about watching it, but it is just like it is a completely engrossing experience to watch someone yeah. pull off this like that type of vis- visual language in a movie. Like, yeah, for sure. And it's and her not like being like it seems like someone's fourth movie, not their first movie, right? First feature length movie. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's like um, there's there's so much stuff and it. it's just like, like so great and right. it's like. I mean, she clearly learned from one of the best. Yeah, and I I would be curious how Denis is as a like a, a a confidant if you're coming to her as like a young filmmaker or an actor looking to make films. Uh, I'd, I'd be curious because you know obviously it's been brought up a lot, and I don't want to hammer it you know to like make it seems like she's got like a bad reputation, but like she gives withering responses to things when she just is not in the mood. Like it seems that's her. That is her mo for the most part, but I do wonder on a like a if you're not her equal or like a colleague or something like that. If you know if if either of you were on a Claire Denis like were an extra in a Claire Denis movie and she was just on her phone or something and not being particularly bothered, like if you asked her for advice, would she help you? Like I don't know. I I, I am curious about right. that. Yeah, um, it, it is. If, like yeah it's like wondering like if she gave her straight advice or it's like was more a learning by do it learning by seeing thing because it's like that the influence is clear but like back to the movie it's like mm-hmm. sort of one it's again one of our more straightforward movies in that it's like it's like there's there's little confusion plot wise it's sort of just like about these characters revolving around each other and like the story is just like what these people get from each other and what they want from each other and i think it's mostly chronological yes mostly chronological but and i think that's like the mode in which she operates that i love that i enjoy the most that i certainly like connect to personally the most and vibe with the most i think that is why i love let the sunshine in also that is why i love i really liked us go home of just like Sometimes the plot is just like what people, what you can glean from glances. And that is a, like a fantastic way to make a movie. Sometimes you can just find the story in these people's eyes. Yeah. Especially, I mean, we talk about, we talked about Alex, but do you, do you feel that 
like Mati uh, Mati Diop is like paid the same has like the same effect in the movie because I, I almost feel like she gets less like direct business. Obviously, she has her relationships mm-hmm. with you know with Noah and the you know visiting the grave with him and her father you know with her father and things like that. But do you, yeah. do you think like she is pay- like her and Gabrielle and no way and everybody else have the same impact it's just because it's such out it's so much alex's movie like he's so clearly the main character yeah yeah i think i think i mean she's for sure the closest i think there is some good stuff with her and like her relationship with no way and like the sort of turns that that those aspects take that are interesting. I think she is g- very good with Dekal when they're both on screen and just like the way that they talk to each other and the sort of relationship they have. I think, I mean, Dekal is, I think, the obvious center of it all, but I, it's like, I think it's like Dekal and then like a gap and then it's Diop and then a gap and then it's like yeah. a- a- the rest of the characters. Right. Well, and I think, yeah, the, I guess what I would say about the major difference is like, I feel like you don't quite get as much of just her isolated like her in the movie i feel like is mostly defined by her other relationships to the other characters and you get a little bit less of her being like and i think that's partially just a function of her being like a young person right and where she's like she she doesn't have as much to like ruminate and look back on and is more going to uh be defined by these relationships to the other characters yes i definitely agree with that um yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's it's such it's cuz it's because it's such a straightforward film. Like it's so simple like even thematically it's very simple. It's very much right. just like a there are these two people who very much needed each other for a long time and then it's the yeah. world making them realize like they don't need each other as much and they can go on and be their own person. And like you know, obviously there's like other themes about like you know, not being able to move forward with that like his friend Renee and you know, he tragically kills himself because right. he doesn't know what to do uh when he moves forward but like that's the one simple theme that it's like serving and you know there's the idea that like mati doesn't want to like upset him in any way like obviously the rice cookers like she hides her rice cooker and then he finds it at the end of the movie uh yeah and you know he he, he she's trying to be gentle with him and without you know just coming out and saying that she's trying to be gentle with him because obviously you know, loss is such a hard thing to deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's very, but other than that, like it's so simple. And I think that's why I enjoy it so much. Like it, yeah. to a certain extent, all of her movies are actually quite simple. Yeah. Uh, well, it's just, there's a couple like Lynn truth and stuff like that, where there's like some weird plottiness. To it. Okay. And, all right. I'm excited for that. Yeah. yeah. That one's yeah. That one a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I'll say, and I mean, like, the movie is, like, obviously, it's influenced by Late Spring, which is, like, ob- in, in a similar movie, which is just, like, about this woman who is, like, this woman and her father sort of learning that they have to come to the place where they're sort of being pushed towards and that sort of relationship. To it. I mean, I'm lucky it's, it's influenced by the only Ozu movie I've seen, but... Uh, <laughs> I feel like I feel like Ozu is definitely one of those directors that me and my friends and colleagues and everything uh, like all are in agreement is like, yes, we should watch more. But we've all just seen one. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's like I've talked about the trip to New York. I went where as for it, which is when I saw Trouble Every Day in theaters. But that is also the trip in which I went to BAM and saw Late Spring in theaters and was sort of. 
And, and that's for sure a movie that I maybe have the same relationship I had with like my early Claire Denis movies where I watched it and I was like, huh? And then I sat with it for like a couple of weeks and was like, you know what? I get what it was going for. It was it was certainly doing things. There, there's like a relationship there that sort of grows within you over time. And I think that's what is great about 35 Shots of Rum, that it's a movie that she makes good movie. Uh, as you said at the beginning, like she's rewatchable, but even if you don't rewatch them, they just sit with you and, you, and they're mm-hmm. good to just sit with and just like think about them for a while. Yeah, I definitely. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, also I just want to give a shout out to trains in this movie. Trains, a uh, perfect they're cinematic cool. device, always yeah. good in a movie, never disappointing. Even in a movie sure. as lo-fi as this, and they're not trying to stop the train. Like, even that is just like a what are trains well they are a pre like they are something that is predestined and this movie is all about like mm-hmm. predestinate like literally being like a it is an inevitability that you two will have to lead separate lives at some point yeah. and like it's just an interesting uh visual device to have like things going up and down tracks and like the sound of trains and things like that so i mean yeah i for sure agree like trains when has a train been bad in a movie trains are always good always good elevates yeah. Speed is a movie that is about it's a bus movie by all intents and purposes. Its entire third act is a train is a train sequence. That's how good trains are. It's, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's the escalation. From buses. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, up the stakes in the third act. It's like the first movie is it's like a train coming into a station. <laughs> it's a train going into a station. That's look, right. Yeah. I'm just saying. I look. I'm just saying. More people need to start using more trains in movies again. Yeah. Uh, we we haven't had a good train movie since like The Commuter. I think that's yeah. the last one I can remember. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. And guess good. And good. Good in the loose. In the loose. Well, I mean, I, this- I mean, I like the Commuter. It's for. Sh- I think it's for me the number one example of like if that movie didn't have a train, that movie would be garbage. And since it has a train in it, it is good. So it's yeah, like- exactly. <laughs> uh, Mission. Shout out to Mission Impossible Seven. That. That apparently there's gonna be a train, multiple trains in it. Yeah, shout out to the so. train. I mean, it's like this, yeah. again a weird digression, but it's like I sort of had this weird relationship with like 2000s Tony Scott in that like uh, there's a lot of his movies where every time I watch them I'm like I should love this, I should love Man on Fire, and then I watch it I'm like it's not quite there for me, and then Unstoppable is the only one where like I watch it and I'm like I'm gonna love this, and then I loved it. And it's because of the train. It's because of the train. Even that, even the remake of taking Pelham one two three, which isn't good. I wouldn't call it good, but like when they're on the train, you're like, all right, this is working for me. And then they cut away from the train, you're like, well, Denzel's working for me. I don't really know how much anything else is working for me. So look, it, yeah. it, tra- trains are a powerful force in cinema. I think we need to use more of them, especially in ways like this, where they literally serve a thematic purpose. Yeah, like. <laughs> They're they're dangerous one way, uh, big and there's people in it's fast and there's people in them. So they have everything <laughs> you, you need to be for a movie. All but the ingredients. Yeah. I thought we should close it out by talking about Bastards, which is the third movie we're gonna talk about here, which is her twenty thirteen movie. Mm-hmm. Correct. Uh, Premiered uh at Cannes in in certain regards. Which um, does that so mean out of com- that just means out of competition? It's no, a separate competition. It is a separate competition. It's like it, it's a little mean calling it the B competition. It can, but that is what it sort of is. It, it is like usually reserved for like first or second time filmmakers, but a lot of times like 
old vets like her will get a shot at and will appear there if they don't appear in competition. Yeah. Uh, Other but, movies, uh, in, in certain regard, we got Fruitvale Station, Bling Ring, um, Stranger by the Lake, uh, and that was that was the uh, that the, in the main competition y- that year, that was the Spielberg is the president of the jury year, uh, oh, where he yes. gave the palm to Blue is the warmest color. Yes, the two <laughs> I remember that, <laughs> and. It, it's ha- it haunts me wa- thinking about Steven Spielberg watching that movie. I've thought about it every and and, going bananas for and go it. and losing his mind. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny because it's like other movies in competition that year. Behind the Cobb the Lobra. I have not watched, but I'm sure it's pretty good. Inside it's pretty good. Inside Lewin Davis, great. The Immigrant, which is like pretty good. Uh, the Great Beauty, which is like the art house like hit of the year, sort of. A Touch of Sin, the Giajanka movie, which is very good. Only Lovers Left Alive, which is a which is a good Jarmusch movie. Only God Forgives, which is a weird movie. Nebraska. There's like plenty of stuff in there. The, <laughs> but that was like one of those years where it, it's just like everybody watches a one movie and like before everything even premieres, we were, people are like, "That's the movie. It's blue is the warmest color." Yeah, I, it's all I heard like out of that year. Like I don't even think I think I heard about some of the other ones you mentioned well after the festival because that movie was all anyone could talk about and uh obviously its legacy right. is interesting now uh yeah it's, it's got an I mean, interesting legacy i uh, mean it, it, that's the thing I, we've talked about its legacy was interest it, its legacy was interesting then it was like a hot button thing instantly like at can yeah. people were already talking about the problem that they had with it that people still bring up to this day and it was like crazy that it People are just like, well, it's got to be blue. It's the warmest color, though. Yeah. <laughs> I always wonder, you know, not to get too far away from me. I always wonder if uh, the appeal of that movie to Steven Spielberg in other people, including me when I was a little when I was younger, uh, mm-hmm. is that there is a sweetness to it when it's not dealing with, you know, the controversial aspects of it. Um, right. And I just yeah, want, and I just wonder if that's the like X factor as to why like it persisted for so long before people were like, a, okay, yeah, it's a sweet movie, but uh. <laughs> right, yeah, God, I like, yeah, I saw that movie in its like art house run, like after it came out, like just because like it was a movie that everyone couldn't stop talking about. I don't really remember it very well outside of like thinking like, yeah, the boy, those sex scenes sure do go on a bunch. Um, <laughs> it's funny. You remember, people remember the sex scenes. I can never stop remembering her eating, sp- like eating things. There's a lot of eating in that sure. movie. She like slurps yeah. spaghetti and stuff. Right. <laughs> it's all I can. I think I, I, yeah, I did like it at the time. Although yeah, I do not hold the, that opinion. Uh, you know, I do not know if that opinion stands up to this day. Yes. I do not remember much of the movie. But yeah. but yes, this was this was uh, not in the main competition. No. This was in uh, yes, you know, always good, always funny to think of like the context behind it. But yeah, it is her twenty thirteen can uh, her twenty thirteen movie. It is Andy. Would you like to say what it's about? Ah, <laughs> uh, boy, I don't know if I. <laughs> This is the movie that, like, most suffered from me having to marathon these three movies uh, in a 48-hour period or so. It was, I mean, so, like, my experience with, like, especially, like, 
the first 15 minutes, I was like, I don't know what is happening. I don't know who any of these people are or what their relationship is or, like, what... Like, I can't... Like, how many characters have I met? Like, I couldn't... I couldn't deal with it for, like, at least 15 minutes. And then it sort of uh, came into a little bit more focus. It's, like, a guy and his uh, brother's... His brother dies... And it's and his and his widow is like a f- old friend of his, and like she has a failing business that she used to run with the husband who has died, uh, and a daughter who has been like has mental health issues galore, and also was like horribly sexually abused, who is like in a mental institution, uh, and and he like comes back from his job. He like works on an oil rig or something. Like he's, yes, he's like ca- he's a ship boats. captain. Yes, uh, he comes back to like help them sort things out and like figure out what's what is like the basic premise. Yes, uh, and after that, like boy, I'm not sure I could I could go much further in terms of like what happens in the movie. I mean, it is for all intents and purposes, it's a revenge thriller. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, her her take on a revenge thriller essentially uh you know there's i i think it might be his i think it might be his brother-in-law is dies and it's his sister that he's like like that is his niece who he is helping out um well would be his niece anyway but i think it's his sister like his sister that's right yeah um and uh yeah i mean and then you 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 have the 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 you know the fact that he's having an affair with this man who might be responsible you ultimately like i mean you know people we've assumed people have seen these movies when we talk about them and so like the reveal of this movie is what makes it uh incredibly harrowing besides you know all the things that precede it uh but you know there's this uh this is like rich man who you know is possibly you know went to the same sex clubs as him and uh you know he is having an affair with that man's wife there's some ins and outs. I, I would say, guys, that to, to me, like her, her take on a you know revenge thriller is that she's essentially letting someone play out the power fantasy of like secret because like he essentially lets his life he voluntarily lets his life go to hell for right. no for essentially no reason like by the he, end, like, like for no reason in his life insurance like he yeah. like is like all in on this immediately all in and yes. he gets to and for a while he gets to live the fantasy he gets to beat people up he gets to have an affair with like you know marcello mastrioni's daughter i'm assuming that's who that is i because yeah. her last name is mastrioni yeah, and uh, she looks she, like marcello mastrioni <laughs> yeah she's his daughter with Catherine deneuve yes um uh and it, you know and then at the end of the movie like he's just you know, he's just shot and get, like it was all for naught. And you, when you you find out the reveal that it was her father, sexually abusing her at this like sex club, like it, it it really does like you feel awful when the movie's over. <laughs> and the recurring motif with the corn cob, and I just I can't. Oh, yeah, <laughs> the cor- bloody corn. The cob. bloody corn cob is one of the craziest things. Yeah, and then. I haven't seen Tr- Trouble Every Day. You know, and some of the other like. French extremist right. thing she's like dabbled in so like this isn't my first you know obviously mm-hmm. hi- I've seen High Life and High Life has its it's it's intense in its own ways right. and it's but like this is like very much of a piece uh, with like that French extremist like 
this could be a double feature with irreversible like very easily like if you wanted it to be um you i wouldn't suggest anyone ever do that but you could (laughs) Um, i mean it's like recently we also talked on the podcast about uh god why do i always forget his name but demon lover the the asayas movie which is also like yes there's definitely they they dabble in some like sketchy sex shit in it with right. which it centers on so it's like a lot of movies are like that around that though this is like from 2013 so this is like much later than a lot of that stuff yeah it's also interesting that this played the same year as only god forgives at can because they are very sim- like they are very much like deconstructionist revenge thrillers that are like yeah. mostly vibes and you don't really know what the story is until it's over um yeah, and I yeah, I mean it's like what you said. Your read on it is I think pretty similar to my read on it, which she just makes this movie where it's like this guy just sits and stews on his anger about being about what's happening for like an hour and a half, and then he like finally tries to do something about it, and then he just gets shot and dies. It's just like, he just gets shot and and for nothing, like essentially for nothing. He accomplished <laughs> nothing. The people who were like in are like who seem to be responsible for the thing seem to like only like barely like only sort of aware and bothered by what is happening. It's like towards the end, like the, the sort of big rich bad guy played by Michael Subhor, who we talked about in like when we talked about Lynn Truce and uh, Bo Trevay, he like at one point he just like leaves and takes his son with him and he's like, listen, I think there's something going on and I'm going to take my kid cuz I think he's in danger but uh. Yeah, he it's really funny that he gets indignant <laughs> even though like it's that whole thing of like I mean the movie's called Bastards because it's obviously about like and you you pointed that out like it's this like impotent rage that you know we all feel about like like I can't believe there are these people in the world who do these awful things and these like secret cabals that like we can't really do anything about. Yeah, uh, I mean yeah, to be more like straightforward like the movie's title is like the Kira Kurosawa movie The Bad Sleep Well in French is titled Le Salut Domain et Pas, which translates to Bastard Sleep in Peace. And that's where she got the title for this movie. And that's like what it's about. It's just like these guys did a bunch of fucked up things and they don't, it's like, yeah, they don't give a fuck. The, the, the movie, there's like no punishment for them. They're like fine. Though I guess like the the father is like he dies at the beginning so i assume that like there was some conscious thing that happened with him that like sort of punished him for what he did but like this other rich guy now nah, he's just chill with the whole thing no he's gonna take his son and go and go somewhere else i get like you know it's just another it's just another week for him uh i don't i don't know I feel like I actually enjoyed this movie a lot. I know people kind of, as far as like Denis movies, I feel like this is pretty low on the totem pole. Uh, yeah, it kind of it kind of reminds me of the way people reacted to the Corieta film, The Third Murderer, where everyone was just like, "Uh, yeah, that was interesting. Go do go back to something else now." Uh, <laughs> I feel like reading yes. people's reactions to this from 2013. That that's the that's the vibe I got. Um, it's interesting that a very a more successful version of this movie would come out like f- four years, five years later. Blim Ramsey's "You Were Never Really Here." It's essentially the same movie. You know, it's about like these. Uh, uh, oh man, I'm blanking. I'm so sorry, guys. I'm blanking on the name of the person who is the connecting factor in the real world pedophile ring that everyone Jeffrey makes jokes Epstein. about. 
Yeah, the Epstein. Uh, <laughs> um, like very much like the Epstein, you know, thing of sure. like infiltrating that and like seeing how far the web goes and you know it being completely hopeless like and just evil and dark and grimy uh but not to take i'm not taking anything away from claire's vision of this movie it just feels like that elliptical you know her style doesn't really fit a movie like this because while there is that gut punch at the end of like ah her father was the one who did it and this was all for naught i don't I don't feel, I don't really feel particularly much after that. Like, I don't, like, I don't, this, I don't really, I didn't really stew on this movie. And it's not just because I didn't want to think about it anymore. It was just more like a, yeah, he got to live a fantasy and he died. And that was it. And yeah. I don't, I don't know if I would ever see this again. <laughs> yeah. It's like weirdly, we talked about this, I think. When did we talk about Lynchers? Did we talk about that with Bill Gar? Yeah, two weeks ago. No, we no, talked about with um yeah and yeah and then meg and then we talked but we talked about friday night with belga and what we talked about with those movies in trouble every day was that she often has these structure to these movies where you're just like is this a horror movie is something gonna go completely wrong and like obviously in like trouble every day and lynn truth there's some like sketchy stuff but you're like this is horrible this is horrible and then at the end you're like oh that was actually like pretty sweet and there's like some humanity to this and like you can see where people are coming from and why she chose to point a camera at these people and this weird movie's like weirdly the opposite where it's just like there's a lot of stuff in the middle where you're just like oh this is maybe like weirdly like introspective and sort of sweet about like this person trying to like right past wrongs and find himself with like his old friends and like try and like what's his relationship with this woman and like trying to solve the whole thing and then the end is just like bleakness it's just like terrible it's like just like this is horrible and just like the world is awful and nobody's ever gonna get away with this and it just sort of like leaves you on a sour note which is like obviously what she is intending to do i'm not being like this movie should have a happy ending but i I do agree that it's sort of like weird with her style because it's like it's weird to be like pessimistic and distant in the way that her movies can be because it's just like then i just sort of have nothing here it's like if you're gonna be this pessimistic at least give me like some like deep recognizable urgency some urgency or some recognizable humanity for me to be like oh yeah sure i get this i I also feel like we just don't spend in and forgive me since i don't have the actress or the character's name with me um the the young girl like i feel we don't spend Obviously, there is that stretch where she goes back to the two people who run the sex barn or whatever yeah. um, and crashes their car. Yeah, one uh, of them being Gregoire Crolin. Yes. Like, in all of these movies. <laughs> um, but I, I feel like, you know, you know, for someone who obviously, you know, has uh, mental health issues and, you know, so much of what happens in the movie happens to her. And maybe that is the point. And I, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not saying it might not be the point of, like, no, we're spending so much time with him because you should feel bad about this power fantasy, which she doesn't strike me as a director who so much deals in, like, deconstructing power fantasies, but that's the only read I really have on this movie, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I and, think I, I, my read on it would more be, like, like she obviously she makes these movies about wanting, and she makes this movie about, like, a guy who really wants, like, to, like, fix the situation that he's in, but in, like, sort of in the real life you can't fix. Like, there's no fixing what happened. Yeah. And often you can't because like that's what the powers that be dictate. Yeah, I just wish we had spent more time with her. I think that was I think that was what I was missing from this movie is that she's almost a cipher because uh, things just kind of happen to her. Uh, yeah, 
I mean, obviously, she there are some you know there are some things she does do, like she makes the choice to leave the hospital and you know the, the blood dripping and all that stuff, and the police picking her up, and you know that sets things in motion. But uh, you don't really get a lot of her interiority, which I feel like is the one thing missing. You spend a lot of time with um, is her name Kiara Mastrioni? Yeah, Kiara uh, Mastrioni. Yeah, yeah. Her I character mean, obviously, name is uh, Raphael. Yeah. I mean, I would say, like, those would be the big three characters of the film. Like, yeah. you know, uh, and you just spend time with her and, like, you you do feel bad when he does, she does, like, they take her son and, you know, she's obviously in this, she's a arm, she's, you know, she's a piece of arm candy for this man because there's that scene where he's just like a jerk me off, like, rolls over, like, you think he's going to be sweet or something for a second. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I, you know, I would just... I think that was what was missing. Maybe just some levity to make the the sourness at the end, like just to cut it a little bit. I don't know. But if, as far as like my read on it is like a like a you know a power fantasy or deconstruction of that or a revenge thriller, it's pretty successful. It's just not unlike something like Only God Forgives. Like th- there's nothing that would make me want to deconstruct it further than that. It, it, there's no style there's nothing like stylistically that would make me want to revisit this <laughs> or like reconsider yeah. it from like a different angle um though yeah. i still think still think a, a good movie yeah if, yeah i think if like it's a good movie have like a lot of like interesting elements to it i just think that like yeah it, it's sort of, there's like an oomph there that lacks that it lacks for me yeah where it's like as you mentioned like in a movie like only god forgives there is the stuff that is appealing for then you to feel bad about. And then this, but then this movie just lacks all of the stuff that is appealing. That stuff is just like sad throughout. And then the end is sadder. Yeah. Like you don't even get to enjoy the like power, like his part of like these incredible, you know, these very incredibly attractive people hooking up and these like very sensual sex scenes, which are like filmed very well. Like I love the way she films the sex scene, but even that is like, I mean, like a, yeah, I'll say the fight scenes are what it's like. They're they're like sort of funny to me when I saw them. Like one of <laughs> one of them is almost like De Niro kicking that guy in the Irishman level of like the, these people aren't right. these people aren't hurting each other. What are you kind of got in a second take of this? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> I I actually agree with that. It's yeah. It's not. It's not a slick movie. It's not supposed to be a slick movie. Um, right. But there's, you know, it's it's walking a weird line where it's, like, also not hyper-realistic or great. Like, I don't know. Like, it, it, there's some, there's some there's something about her poetry yeah. that, like, doesn't make yeah. this. Yeah, it's, like, not punchy enough, I guess. Yeah, it's, like, it's just, like, it, it's, it's, like, as horrible as some of the stuff that it depicts, it's, like, cool, sh- it should be some of the stuff it depicts. None of it ever, like hits you in the face and it's like that's a credit to her style sometimes but in this movie it just like yeah it leaves a little to be desired andy do you have anything to say with about it before we end the podcast i don't think so i think you guys have covered it really well yeah it was i had a really hard time with it it's among the least favorite that we've talked to see <laughs> that i yeah i don't really it's you know it's not really my genre to begin with and like yeah it's um yeah i you know i i'm sure i'm i'm glad for people who like this sort of thing that it's there for them well, David, do you have anything final to say about Claire Denis and anything to plug? Um, I, w- I will say that 
I will continue my now you know now that it's 2021 and obviously you guys covered some things that are harder to find still to this very day like I will actually pursue filling in those you know those gaps like very like very interested in like white material and all those yeah all those films uh, and I'm very excited to see Trouble Every Day it's a movie <laughs> movie I hear a lot about and you know maybe a more successful version of the violence that I saw in Bastards but like Claire Denis seems like is is very much one of those directors I think is very fascinating very interesting and it's it was great to like kind of watch three very different films by her and kind of get a cross section of how her brain somewhat works um so yeah. thank you for thank you for giving me that opportunity as far as plugs social media you can find me on twitter at samurai flicks on instagram and letterboxd uh at robert dolphy um i am the co-host of the place for film podcast we're doing our summer series about movie musicals we literally just posted our first episode today with bells are ring the vincent minnelli movie um i am the program coordinator for the Harvard film festival which is july 20th to 25th um there there you can go to the website to find like details how to register for that to to be decided if the feature length film festival will be in person um Mm -hmm. and uh just plugging one of my other bosses books about josephine baker because she worked very hard on it and it's called josephine baker's cinematic prism by dr terry francis so if you want to learn more about josephine baker check that book out and if you're in bloomington on june 5th or nearby in the midwest come to my pop-up theater's uh, screening of them because the cicadas are out and we're going to show the Beau Travai of giant bug movies. Them. <laughs> and uh, everyone should just get pumped for Matrix 4. That has nothing to do with anything but Matrix Resurrections. Like, I'm just, I feel like people aren't as horny as I am for this movie and it's all I've been, it's all I can think about at this point. I just really want to see it. <laughs> Hey, listen, talking to the podcast that once gave an award to Matrix Reloaded. So, you know, you're on the right <laughs> way. Hey, underrated movie. That's all yeah. I'm saying. They're all those sequels are underrated. So, yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks, David. Of course. That was, yeah, you awesome. Thank you so much for coming. Now, normally the host would do the plugs, but I'm not the regular host. So I'm going to let Andy do the plugs because he probably knows them. Oh boy. I mean, well, so right. You can follow us on Twitter at can I kick it. You can follow us on letterboxd at C I K I pod. Uh, I think that's all the regular plugs that we do. Uh, my personal, uh, social media ha- handle is Andy T germ, uh, on Twitter, letterboxd, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if you like what we're doing and want to help us out, uh, or just show some appreciation, we do have a coffee, that's ko-fi.com slash canni, C-A-N-N-E-S-I. Uh, any donations you want to throw our way, always greatly appreciated. I don't believe we've made any progress on Jesse's weird promise that she would go to Can if we made a certain amount of money that I forget how much it was. So uh, no progress on that front, but uh, I would appreciate the donations regardless. Um, a personal plug this week. I don't know if I ever talked about it. I saw it in the Heights at the like Mother's Day preview thing, and it was fucking Oh, fantastic. my God. I loved it so much. We're, uh, we're covering that this summer on our music, yes. movie musical podcast, so I'm very excited about finally, yes. about finally uh, watching it. Yeah. I, yeah I, shot, I saw that show, I think, three times on Broadway. It was like, I went, because it was like my freshman year of college was like 
like I, I caught like the end of Lynn's run and then like I caught Corbin Blue and I think I caught Javier in the middle or something like so I've seen that show a few times I do think the movie like makes some interesting changes that I really like was excited by uh and it's uh got so many great dancers in it which is just like wonderful to see like so much dancing happening on on screen um so yeah that's my plug go see that uh in like three weeks when it opens <laughs> Emilio uh yeah our theme song is by Tree Related. You can find him at soundcloud.com slash tree related or search tree related on Spotify. He makes good music. You should check it out. As for me, you can follow me on Twitter at I'm Laugh Alone and you can follow me at Letterbox at I Laugh Alone. Probably be doing a little more posting on Letterbox these days because I've just been watching a little more stuff and have more stuff to say there, so follow me there. As for a plug, I usually don't plug things, but since Colin's not here, I'll keep his spirit alive and I'm going to plug. An album. I'm going to plug Tatsuro Yamashita's Big Wave. Tatsuro Yamashita, the king of city pop. One of the best genres of music, and he was the king of it. Big Wave is a... It is like the soundtrack he did for like a surfing documentary once. And it's like the front side is just like banger jams by or by him. And then the B side is just Beach Boys covers. And it fucking rules. It's the best. <laughs> Everybody should listen to it. <laughs> and with that... I'll release our audience. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Marvin, 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 Marv